You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. First trip to New York? Yes. Anything edible in there? No. Livestock? Must get that fixed. Um, no. Let me take a look. Welcome to New York. Welcome, everyone, to the 602 Club, our geekery speakeasy. We're so excited to be here tonight. And, uh, well, we got the speakeasy part right because we are going to be diving into Fantastic Beasts and where to find them right in the middle of the swinging 20s here. And, whoo, uh, I hope everybody's got their gin and juice and ready to go. I'm, I'm super excited to be here, guys. Like, I'm super excited. Uh, I have some amazing fantastic guests with me tonight to talk about fantastic beasts and where to find them first and well not really foremost because you're both foremosts so don't get any ideas guys but bethany it's great to have you back here in the 602 club hi matt thanks it's great to be back and talking harry potter i've literally never podcasted about anything harry potter related before so this makes me very happy. Awesome. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you back and to be talking about something that's in the Harry Potter universe. And of course, to do that, that means that I need Drea Kaufman. Hi, guys. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this. Maybe not as much as Matt, but I've been waiting. And I, if you, you can't see me, but I'm like, I'm like wiggling right now. She is. She just looks like a billy wig right now. He can't stop wiggling. It's it's wonderful. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie or you don't know Fantastic Beasts or where to find them, you could pick up a copy of Newt Scaramander's book sponsoring the show. To, no, I'm just kidding. No, not at all. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Well, before we dive into the film, just remember, of course, you can find all the shows here on Trek FM on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're a feature provider there. Really want to say thank you to everybody who's been giving us star ratings and reviews recently. We've got like five or six new ones. We've said thank you to everyone already, but I uh, appreciate it so much. Head on over there. Give us a star rating review. It'll really help people find the show when they're searching for things in iTunes to listen to. And uh, it helps us rise up in the rankings, too. We're on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We're, of course, uh, got the listeners-only discussion group, the Babel Conference, that you can find there on Facebook. Type Babel into the search field there. Or if you're on our website at trek.fm, you can also click discussion on any of the menu bars. You can leave us voicemails. Love getting those at speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. And again, on the website at trek.fm, you can send us an email. Go to trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. Choose the 602 Club. And that will come straight to me. Well, we've got to dive right in because we are in a whole new beginning for the Harry Potter universe. And 
I wanted to ask and get your opinion. Dre, we talked a little bit about this the last time, but I wanted to get your and Bethany's opinion. So we kind of heard that this this new foray into the Harry Potter universe might be three films. We really weren't sure. And then the announcement was made by J.K. Rowling herself that this would be five films. And so I wanted to get your perspective as you are coming into this one. Did that have any impact on on what you thought about this film? Did it make you even more excited? Uh, what did both of you think when you heard, oh, man, we're going to get five more films? Were you excited or you were like, is this just a crash cash grab? Well, I guess for me, I I will admit that I did not know it was five films. I actually literally didn't know that it was five films until I was reading through your show notes earlier today, Matt. So I, I knew that it was kind of a restart to the franchise and there were more films coming, but I, I didn't know that they had like an overarching theme of leading up kind of to and through World War II and they would be le- leading through this uh, great wizard's war. Uh, so that actually really excited me because, I, I mean, I was excited about the film, but at the same time I was a little like, what's Harry Potter without Harry, without Hermione? And, you know, so so I was a little like, you know, I'll go see it and then I'm sure it'll be fun and good, but I, I was a little hesitant because kind of be like, what would Star Wars be without any Skywalkers, for example? Uh, or what would the Lord of the Rings be like without any hobbits? So I was just wondering how it would work. Uh, but I'm very excited for the future of the Harry Potter franchise uh, in film format based on this movie and based on what we know of the films coming forward. So kind of like I said in the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 podcast we just did um i don't watch trailers i try not to read a lot about the upcoming things i did know this was multiple um movies and i I did know it was based on the the book that's about the extent of what i knew so i was kind of skeptical on how they were going to make it go five movies um when i got when i walked out though i was like everything makes sense and it kind of went back to uh to, to Rowling being just like this evil maniacal genius who plays with all of our feelings um, because I feel like she's had this plan in mind longer than she's let on um, because it now makes sense why this whole backstory was left out of the Harry Potter series because she's going to do an entire series on it. And I was so, so excited because that was for me what was missing from the Harry Potter series was that whole chunk of the last book where we talked about Dumbledore's background and Grindelwald and the first dark ages for the the wizards and stuff. So I'm, I'm like super, super stoked that we're going to get more. Um, and I thought this was a good starting point, but again, I don't, I don't know that I enjoyed it as much as a standalone film. I really enjoyed it and I like what it's going to, how it's kicking us off, but, um, I'm glad it's the first of many and not just a solo thing. It's, you know, it's not just Justin Timberlake. It's all of NSYNC. <laughs> I like that. That's really funny. <laughs> oh man. I the the interesting thing about this was watching the movie and I had unfortunately heard a couple of things through the the you know internet grapevine that and we're we are gonna get into spoilers here. So I I, I knew coming into the film that Grindelwald was gonna be in the movie and that Johnny Depp was going to be in the movie. I didn't know when or how. 
I just knew that those things were going to happen. Those two and so, things were going to happen. Right. Knowing that those connections were going to ha- were going to come, it it kind of made sense. You know, it, like you said, Drea, Rowling, I was watching an interview with her, and she said that uh, if she had ever really done anything else, if she was going to write anything else, it wasn't going to really be about Harry. What she really wanted to do was this story. And this was the story that was really capturing her imagination to tell. And so for me, that's exciting. And then knowing the plan that this this series is meant to chronicle, basically, the rise of Grindelwald, which is set during the same time as World War II. Uh, and so starting in 1926, and then the final film is the, well, I'm, I'm sure it will be the battle the between Grindelwald and Dumbledore. Uh, I think that's going to be something that's really fascinating, interesting, and it'll be interesting to see how these characters that we meet, like Newt and others, kind of fit into all of that. And so uh, to me, this new beginning is really fantastic and exciting, and I also agree with you in the sense that this stuff was referenced in the Harry Potter films, and in the books specifically, really more than the films, the backstory with uh, Dumbledore and the idea at, that there had been another dark wizard that was like Voldemort. He's the precursor to Voldemort. And so all of that stuff to me, it's kind of exciting to be able to finally get to. It is interesting that Rowling, just like uh, George Lucas, decides that she wants to do a prequel trilogy uh, series for her yeah, stories. But see for me it's not a te- it's it's a prequel chronologically, but it's not it's not like Harry's prequel. We're not hearing well, like that's true. Yes. we're not hearing like James and Lily and Snape's. We didn't go back there and do their story. Like we're literally taking the same universe and chronologically going back in time, but telling a story that's only sort of been taught as legend or history. So in that sense, I don't really think of it as a prequel. I just think of it as another like event in the in the universe, which I think is really smart that she's not just up and abandoning the universe but that she's also not trying to like beat the Harry Potter stick to death. Right, exactly. And that's something that cause I, I think every world builder, even ourselves, if we're telling our young nieces and nephews or our, our kids or we're just world building because we like storytelling uh, or writing or whatever, every world builder likes to think up backstories for their characters, but also for their world, for the history even if it's not something they flesh out hardly at all in the beginning, it's something that they kind of have in mind. Uh, You can't create a story out of a vacuum. You have to, as you're creating the story, you have to figure out some of the backstory to that story. And I love that she's exploring this element without just making it a Harry Potter's relatives or Harry Potter's early childhood or Harry Potter in his late 20s. You know, it's it's actually kind of nice to explore something else, even though I was a little hesitant to explore something else because I didn't really know the plan. And I will admit, I've actually never read the books. I've only seen the films. So I was pretty unfamiliar with any kind of backstory. And that would make a lot more sense if you read at least the last book. It would, a lot of what you just saw in the film, would you'd be like, oh, like you would have those like, oh, 
oh moments. Um, oh, okay. But I think she's going to play those out throughout the whole series. So you don't have to read it. But if you're curious now, I would at least read the last book because it has, I'd say at least a third of the book, if not more, is literally Dumbledore and history of the wizarding world. Well, and, and what makes it really cool, and I like what you're saying, Drea, about the idea that, you know, we're what this, I think, series is doing is creating the milieu to which Voldemort is going to grow up in. And because he is a student who graduates in 1945 at Hogwarts. So he is alive and experiencing the world in which Grindelwald is rising to power in the same way that Harry kind of does with Mm -hmm. Voldemort returning and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a a really interesting way to mirror the two people. Uh, You know, this, this series has an effect on who Voldemort will be. And so, and then he has a huge effect on what happens with Harry's life. So I think it's really a, a great way to tell that story because what happens here has a huge impact on the wizarding world and, and what we experience in that series without it just being like you were saying, like we're not going back and talking about Lily James and you know we're not doing the Marauders series, which I would not be surprised one day if somehow they find a way to do that. I think that would make an awesome little like Sunday, Saturday morning animated cartoon, the Marauders. That would be adorable. I think you nailed the title too. I like yes. it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Kind of like uh, Clone Wars or Rebels style, you know? Yeah. yeah. I could totally yeah. see that. Mm. Or like the Muppet Babies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I have like really weird references. The Marauder Babies. <laughs> the Marauder Babies. <laughs> it's like Harry crawling around like a child. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's hysterical. That's hysterical. Okay. So we're talking about this idea of you know the beginning and how it's connecting so i mean we might as well jump into some of the big things that do happen in this movie that do connect the generations and so what's happened is that percival graves aka grindelwald uh, has found his way into the magical congress of the united states of america makuza for short uh and he's an order there and he's using his position to try and find an obscurus. Now, an obscurus is a new thing in, in the Harry Potter lore, even though, as we'll talk about, I think it connects to something we've heard of before from Dumbledore and his sister, Ariana. He's looking for this obscurus because what it is is so when a child takes their magic and pulls it inside themselves and doesn't want to use it because it's afraid, it it has to come out somehow. And what it ends up doing is creating this dark force within them that they end up can't control, and it wreaks havoc. And it usually kills, unfortunately, the children uh, around eight years old. Like, that, that's the longest that anyone had been recorded ha- having lived. And so he's looking for... This obscurus. So, I, what's really interesting then is the question becomes: Did he know, and has he experienced an obscurus before? In Dumbledore's sister Ariana, who, as a young child, was tortured by some Muggle boys, and never Lost wanted to use her powers her power. again. It's it's genius, right? Like mm-hmm. Rowling's doing it again. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, she's she's known this like. 
she's had this like giant i imagine her house is like this like what you imagine crazy people's house is looking like with like the things and the string between them and like the marker all over the pictures and the big question like that's what her her house looks like for like her story arcs she's known this already like this 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 is like we're all like oh and she's like gotcha yeah no i think that's (laughs) i think that's really cool to the way in which you know, she gave you the, uh, just like she did in the Harry Potter series, she would give you the pieces of the story without necessarily always naming everything. And then later on, she would name it. And so finally, we, we get back here to Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And we've given a name to that thing which you've already seen and kind of understand how it works. And now you're getting the full on story. And I think that's that's really fascinating. And it also creates this really interesting story for what we'll get later on. I think as we know Dumbledore is going to be in the series and we know that Grindelwald is going to continue to be a part of the series as this is really about his rise to power. And so I, I am really fascinated to see how what we learned and especially the Deathly Hallows book about Dumbledore, his relationship with Grindelwald, what effect that all had on him. Again, she is a really good storyteller. Mm -hmm. I am curious how she's going to, and at this point I've sort of just learned to trust her, but I'm curious how she's going to weave Newt throughout the storyline because he doesn't have a defined path yet we know where he ultimately ends up just based on some of the the known universe knowledge um and and there's a few things that you know she confirmed and she sort of i don't know necessarily ruined but um about his sort of like future and interactions and we sort of already had him tied to dumbledore so hopefully he'll just sort of come along with Dumbledore but I'll be interested to see how she weaves him in to the like if she if he's going to be a main character for all five movies or if at some point he's going to peter off and this will have been his film and then he'll play smaller parts but he won't be like Harry was where he's the main character of every movie I'm wondering how she's going to sort of play that out I, I mean I will say that I I love the character but I I don't really know what to do with him yeah exactly how how will they transform him into a main character that can hold the screenplay of that particular story for that many movies in the sense that he, he he's kind of an animal keeper so and there's nothing wrong with that but having him at the center front of a war yeah. Unless a change. See, the thing is, I don't want his character to change in the sense that I, I don't want them to turn him into another Harry Potter where he just leaves that side of his personality kind of behind and has to give up on his uh, magical creatures side of his uh, side of himself in order to fight a giant war and lead one side against the other or you know, play it uh, mystery hunting to find the evil bad guy and that sort of thing. Because then it fundamentally changes the character when what he's truly interested in and what he loves 
are these creatures that he's attached to that he cares for that are his passion and without that i feel like the character really suffers i think the way only way i can see her doing that is to have the beasts play a major role in this like epic arc like he'll have to show them he'll have to be like traveling to educate somebody on this beast or he'll have to be looking for this beast or he'll have to, it'll be less like accidental getting out mayhem and it'll be more like intentional. Like these are like, Oh, we can, we can align with the beasts because they can help us in our battle and we shouldn't be fighting against them and the dark wizards. Like I I can kind of see where she might be able to take it, but yeah, I am worried as well, Bethany, that we're going to, we're going to lose that sort of like, the, I think it's called a. She called him a mad zoologist, a mad zoologist. Um, I, I worry we'll lose that aspect to him. Well, see the the thing about a character, for example, like Indiana Jones, is he's a professor. He's an explorer. He loves what he does. He loves old artifacts, and they can make the Indiana Jones movies work without just being like, "Here's Professor Jones teaching at the university the entire movie." Yay, mm-hmm. we just sat through a lecture. We could have just gone to college and watched that. <laughs> but the thing that they do is they take that aspect of his personality and put him on this essentially uh, ancient treasure hunt where he can explore all of these different places uh, and then throw some bad guys into the mix because the treasure hunt kind of becomes the focus of the story, which works perfectly with the profess- uh, professorial side of the character. Uh, But again, like you're saying, unless there's a way to incorporate that into a larger story fluidly, then you might lose sight of the character or you might lose sight of the story. I was reading uh, online and and seeing that uh, there probably is going to be a point in the series where there is kind of a shift in who the main characters are. And you'll you'll will see, you know... um, Newt and Tina, Queenie and Jacob, but they might not be the main focus. And I, I think that film two will probably still have them more as the main focus and begin that shift towards prob- and my, my probably. My guess Dumbledore. is honestly it's going to be Dumbledore uh, who's going to be the one. And but it, it makes sense because we've already had him reference here and we know that Dumbledore from the storyline as Percival Graves, a.k.a. Grindelwald, said, what what makes Albus Dumbledore so fond of you? Uh, and so I, I think that we'll be able to keep him kind of the magical Dr. Doolittle and instead of, you know, uh, like you said, Bethany, somebody who's out there fighting a war. Uh, and, and his contribution to what happens in the war will probably be being able to get beasts to be on their side. And that could be like, if you read Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the the actual book, when it talks about like centaurs and things like that, they ask to have themselves be considered beasts even though they are intelligent. And so I, I'm thinking even characters like that may come into play because of somebody like Newt uh, being able to treat them as equals and talk to them and all that kind of stuff and create a relationship with them to get help. 
So I, I think there's a good way to do it without destroying who he is as a character, because I'm with both of you. I wouldn't really want to see him turn into, you know, King Arthur with, you know, a wand Excalibur out there leading bat. That's just not who I see Newt as being. So I see him as being the Hermione of the group that he'll bring the smarts and he'll bring, you know, the knowledge as from like this, like magical creatures aspect. Um, you know, obviously, you know, if you, he separated the Obscurio from the child in Sudan. Um, so clearly his, proclivity with these beasts do have like real life implications you know he's like he can help he caught grindelwald with that um the flying evil whatever he called it um Uh, the uh the thunderbird yeah the well yeah i mean he's had like he's had real life applications in all of these scenarios so if i if i kind of step back and stop thinking about it from like a beast perspective and think about it from like a scientist perspective i can see that maybe in the next film he'll interact with dumbledore in a more academic setting and bring maybe some more of those science related things um to the table and he'll he'll help from that perspective but i do think that i agree that they'll have to phase him out as a main as the major focus of the film after the next one and that you'll get you know maybe some other allies and then you'll get sort of like in the harry potter series in the last one where they all kind of come together to defeat grindelwald and you'll have to meet all these characters along the way for it all to make sense so I'm hoping, but I just, I don't know how they're going to do it. And I think maybe that's why I'm excited because I know the basic framework of the story based on what she's already told us. And so I'm excited by that. And it gives me just enough excitement that I want to see how she actually plays it out. Well, that's something I want to ask both of you. You know, Bethany, you've only watched the movies. Andrea, you've done both. And so I wanted to ask you how you felt going into this because... The Harry Potter movies, there people already knew what the story was, and we already had expectations. And with this, we only know a basic kind of framework of what's going to happen. And so, uh, do you did that help you enjoy the movie more or uh, like the movie more because you weren't like frustrated or they left things out or you, you know like how how did y'all feel about the fact that this part the Harry Potter universe is made specifically for film? And wasn't something else first. I'm glad she did it after she did Harry Potter. I'm glad she got the experience of screenwriting with Harry Potter and adapting her existing stories to that. Um, and so I I don't think I really have a strong feeling either way. I enjoyed the film. Um, visually, it was a little overstimulating at times for me. Um, and that's totally 100% a personal thing. Same reason why I have a really hard time with the Bourne movies. There's just sometimes too much going on for me to actually be able to focus. But story-wise, I think after Harry Potter, I've just learned, like I said, I've just learned to trust her. And I just want to see what she has to do. And I like the universe she's created. So I'm sold probably until something just goes horribly awry that I don't agree with. And I don't see that happening. So I guess for me... I'll say that I really enjoyed the movie, but uh, I I don't feel that it captured a lot of the elements that um, the Harry Potter films, at least, did in the sense of, in some ways, Harry Potter really was a 
boarding school ultimate good versus evil epic quest tale. And again, Newt does not feel like an epic quest kind of a person. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed it, but it's very curious to me to see what direction they decide to take uh, the characters within the overarching story. I can definitely see the overarching story work, but I don't know about the specific characters. And so I, I feel in some ways like they're kind of experimenting with, oh, how do, how do we really, how, how should we approach this? You know, what sort of characters should we put in here without just resorting back to a copy of Harry Potter? It's interesting because I I think not knowing the story, you know, really not not knowing what to expect uh, and not having really any expectations other than hoping that the story is good. I, I think I actually enjoyed this more than I did the Harry Potter movies because... I don't feel like there's anything that's missing. <laughs> like I'm not coming out being frustrated because, oh, you didn't do this or, you know, like there's none of that. I just get to go in and enjoy the story and the characters and experience everything as it is. And I really, I really enjoyed that um, because I enjoy her universe a ton. I love her books. The movies are good. But this experience of being in her universe as a film created just for film to me made all the difference and I really really like that um, experience and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to continue on that experience for four more films especially since yeah I, you know I know certain things that might happen but I, I still don't have an idea of of really what's gonna, How she's gonna get there. go down yeah yeah I I for me this film also and, and maybe it's a Harry Potter. It was like maybe a Harry Potter, a little bit of an assumption I made. I expected it to be a little more whimsical and a little more lighthearted than it was. And it hit those notes, but probably not as much as I sort of expected it to. Um, you know, he was a very ridiculous character. He reminded me somewhat of what you expected from like, um, David Tennant or Matt Smith's doctor on Doctor Who, like kind of goofy and serious at the same time. But, um, it was it was relatively dark and it stayed dark most of the time and i feel like it would be hard for small children to i mean you talk about the first few harry potter books and how she progressively gets darker with her story this one she just jumps in and it's already dark like we're already in like a super intense very tense political climate and there's so much going on and so so much for us to still sort of learn it felt it was very like at the beginning, the first probably half of the movie, I was very overwhelmed. I was like, hold on, wasn't wasn't prepared for this. I need another minute to like re refocus and then I'll be back. And then she lightens up near the end. And I think she gets her rhythm a little bit more when they start hunting the beasts that got out um of the case. So I hope that I mean, it definitely sets me up for a different experience for the next few movies. And knowing the storyline, it's only going to get darker. And I already thought this was pretty dark, so I'm a little hesitant on how dark we're actually going to get here. I almost feel like she, uh, the storyline has started Fourth at the end. same level that the Deathly Hallows started at, uh, as when you talk about darkness Half level. Prince, probably for me, Half Blood Prince. Half Blood Prince. Yeah. Where the tensions are high, but nothing's been confirmed, and then right, 
And uh, I think part of that is that for her, she's writing to an audience who's already grown up with the characters, you know? So she is writing the series. I think this is more of an adult series, you know? I agree. So I, I think that's intentional on her part. So I definitely understand what you're saying. It's funny, though. I felt like this movie actually kind of felt more like the first movie for Harry Potter where I saw all it being very light for the big, the, like the first half and then it progressively got darker just the way the original Harry did where it's like, oh, well, now we're going to show it out with Voldemort and his face is going to pop out of the back of the guy's head and it's going to get super creepy, <laughs> you know? Like, so, like, I, because the... The room is filled with flames. Yeah, because the beginning for me and even throughout the middle, it's it's very... I thought the whimsy of it with him, like, trying to go after his Nilfer and and, uh, meeting Jacob and uh, all the things that happen with Jacob, you know, about him being bitten and and all those kind of things and the interaction with Tina and all that stuff was, like, it felt like a a really fun... um, like fast talking 1920s movie kind of movie, you know, where everybody speaks real fast and things happen real fast. And, um, but then, yeah, I, I do agree. The movie does, it does take a dark turn for sure. I mean, and it is, we're dealing with some, we are dealing with some very serious things. Well, for me, it was dark in that not, I mean, those are all the parts that I think kept it from being like a drama and kept it in the fantasy column for me. But mm-hmm. you start out with him walking up off of the boat and through customs and he gets to New York and he walks into one of those witch hunt groups like right away. And then he meets Jacob and Jacob looks terrified and confused for like the first half of the movie. And then, you know, she arrests when he's him like I was there. And now he's exactly what I I imagine I would do. Oh Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but, and then you, you know, you end up to him, her going to the ministry and you can tell that time, like things are intense and everything is just, there's this level of tension throughout the entire film between almost every character and situation that started out in this dark place. Like there was no happy welcome to New York city and it's the city, you know, the city that never sleeps and look at all the innovation in New York and all. The- oh no, no. You're just going to walk right up to a, a witch burning meeting is your first introduction to the, to the movie and to the city. So, you know, welcome to New York, Mr. Wizard. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I guess, oh gosh, there's so much to get into. We kind of keep talking around the characters, so I guess we probably dive into the characters themselves with the cast. You know, um, I've seen Eddie Raymond in quite a few things now, I feel like, and I really really like him as an actor, and I thought his portrayal of Newt as this very introverted and eccentric person who has trouble interacting with people <laughs> like he's not he's very, very people awkward. person i i don't know i just i really thought that he was he was perfect for the role and um what did y'all think i agree to an extent i wish he'd been slightly less socially awkward not a lot but just a little bit and not i don't i don't even know like i don't know what i wanted just slightly less awkward <laughs> just just 
just a smidge. Um, he didn't make eye contact with people for most of the film and that irritated me just slightly. <laughs> I, I get, I get it. But like even near the end when he was very confident and was in his element, he still wouldn't make eye contact. Um, and that just, I just, I, it irked, it irked me. <laughs> it irked me a lot, <laughs> but he did great. Uh, why is that? Just, just plain curiosity. I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you. I'm, I'm an eye contact person <laughs> though. When I talk to people, I like to like look them in the eyes. I like, like it, it's a, a body language thing for me. And I, I get that his is based on being uncomfortable and not being intentionally disconnected from the conversation. But it, it just irked me just a little bit that even throughout the film, as he built the relationships, he never established the eye contact ever. Like, I think he made eye contact with Jacob once and it was that really intense, intimate scene under the um, overpass when they were coming out of the subway. Like it's the only time he pretty much makes eye contact with somebody. And it's it as he builds trust, you would expect him to to grow that eye contact and he never does. And it just irritates me. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't actually really even thought of that. I I I took his portrayal as, as being somebody who probably borders maybe on almost like an Asperger's, you know, type of, of character. You know, he just, he has that type of behavior in the film. Like you said, he doesn't make eye contact. He's very shy. He doesn't really like being the center of attention. Uh, but at the same time, he is wicked good at everything he does. He's a fantastic wizard. Uh, you know, he does things with just complete ease most of the film, which uh, was fun to actually, and, and this is one of the things I really enjoyed about the movie and I enjoyed about his portrayal because we're seeing adult wizards for the first time. For them, magic is second nature, and that's fun to me. And and I thought he portrayed all of that so well. I mean, when he just kind of whips his wand out and like starts doing things in the bank, it's hysterical because he's not taking into account really where he is and what he's doing. He's just doing his thing. And I thought his, uh, his betrayal too with his creatures was really fun. Uh, the way he, he interacts with the creatures, you know, obviously all of them are CGI, but he makes you believe that they're real. And that's, that's exactly what he needs to do as the character. And then I, really loved his interactions with Jacob. Um, I enjoyed his, his growing relationship with Tina. I thought that was really fun, especially by the time they're almost being put to death, having to trust each other. Um, and yeah, when he just starts using magical creatures on people uh, because, you know, they trust him and they can help him and they love him because he takes care of them. It was just, uh, uh, just I love, I really liked his character and, and I, I'm excited to see him continue to hopefully grow as we move forward. I think that's it, and a really exciting thing to be able to watch this character, maybe get a little bit more confident by the time we see him in the next film. And, you know, I'm guessing that a few years will have passed too, since we have 19 years to cover in this series. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, he, I really liked it. So I think there's so much potential for the character. Uh, I would love to see him evolve and mature as somebody who can. I, I mean, I, I think your point about eye contact, I, I noticed it in the film. 
but I've been in cultures and lived in cultures where eye contact is not really a thing or or it just really depends on who you are and who you're talking to and who they are and the setting and that sort of thing. So for for Americans and for most Europeans, eye contact is a pretty big thing. Uh, but I, I felt it showed his... He truly does believe that he doesn't get along well with people and that people don't like him. And it comes across so much in his demeanor and the way that he interacts with people. Uh, almost in some ways, his passion for the creatures might be partially based, I definitely don't think entirely, but might be partially based on the fact that he clearly feels like he can't get along as well with humans, uh, even more magical humans. So I would love to see him mature a bit and become more confident under the tutelage of somebody like Dumbledore or just another older and wiser wizard who can... uh, help him learn essentially because there's there's a lot of potential for the character he is first of all eddie is just a great actor i think my first film that i saw him in was in the les mis movie uh and man he can sing (laughs) and and act i i don't know i i think there's a lot of potential for the character but it's a very delicate situation in like we mentioned earlier, not dragging him away from his passion and who he is as a person now, uh, but having him grow and change as every person does without losing the heart of the character. I really, really want to see him interact with Hagrid, with a young Hagrid, because I feel like they both embody that Hufflepuff, like super feely aspect, you know, where they both just care so much. Um, and have that loyalty. And in this case, you know, Newt's is to the animals and Hagrid's is just to everybody because it's Hagrid. Um, but I would love to see that sort of emboldened trust that Hagrid brings to the table. And that just like, if you don't do wrong by me, I'm going to trust you and always think the best of you sort of fall onto him a little bit and encourage him to be a little softer. Um, because he, I feel like he feels like nobody likes him and that's why nobody likes him because he goes in assuming that nobody likes him where when you have a character like Luna Lovegood who goes in knowing nobody likes her but she doesn't care she just assumes everybody likes her and that everyone's just different so it's interesting to see sort of the reverse of that and maybe that is why the eye contact thing bothered me because I'm like they want to like you let them like you and I'm hoping that that's the character development we're going to get is he's going to learn to use his voice. He's going to learn to to trust and to be a little more kind and, and open, even if it means he gets, you know, hurt again like he did by the Lestrange. Um, so I'm hoping that's where we take the character. And that's why it's such an extreme sort of withdrawn um, aspect. So it, but it but it did just on a on a personal level it irritated the crap out of me because my husband does it all the time so <laughs> <laughs> i think though um one of the things that i i see the character going towards and it, and it really it's it's about this quadology i guess of, of characters that we get you know uh, i think those four characters are really going to help each other grow uh, and we already saw that a little bit in this film uh, i think that you know, Newt is really going to be 
furthered in his development with interaction with people by Tina and by Jacob and by Queenie. I think they're going to draw that out of him and make him more confident and comfortable and, and also give him that foundation of having people, you know? I mean, he had one person and that one person that he had in his life you well, know, we don't, we don't know anything about her, but her name, her name scent speaks volumes. Yes, a little strange. Uh, and so um, if if you remember the name from Harry Potter, Bellatrix is the most famous or strange that we can think of. So, um, yes, that that's the kind of people that we're ending up dealing with. And so for Newt, I, to me, it made sense that he's shy and even more shy than normal because he learned how to trust one person. And then that one person turned on him. And my guess is something... I'm I'm actually guessing that Newt probably took the blame for whatever it is that happened at school that she was probably responsible for. And that's why he's expelled from Hogwarts. But Dumbledore knows that. And that's why he likes him. And that's why he fought so hard to keep him. So I'm, I'm guessing we're going to find out something like that. And, you know, that tends to make people skittish. So um, I want to dive into Tina with both of you and, and see what you thought about her character and Catherine Watterson's portrayal. Um, because I, if, if there's anything I can say about both of the women, they fit perfectly in that 1920s milieu. They look like w- women from the twenties, very thin, you know, like kind of waifish. <laughs> yeah, they, they fit in all those flapper dresses and everything perfectly. So I felt like they were cast well, especially for the time period. But um, yeah, she plays a huge part as a former Auror working for Makuza. What did y'all think? I love Tina. Uh, I, I did think that she was kind of an awkward character, though. She and And I do mean physically awkward a little bit, like diving down underneath her desk and then pretending she's picking up something when her supervisor walks in or tripping or... You know, being being somebody that everybody around her assumes that she's the one making the mistakes because she seems to be a, a fairly, uh, perhaps overly eager person who that eagerness kind of drives her to get really excited and to act a little bit too quickly. But I felt like that was a very good counteraction to Newt's sort of sometimes withdrawn or when it comes to people, uncertain approach. Uh, so I felt like they made a great team working together. Um, and I just, I loved her enthusiasm and the fact that, you know, they made a point of saying in the movie that she was career focused because in that day and age, it would be a little odd perhaps for a woman to be so into her career as opposed to actively seeking out getting a family, perhaps, or getting married. So I, I, I loved the portrayal of the character. I, I loved that they weren't afraid to show her as having emotions and being insecure or feeling sad or feeling like she really, really messed up. Uh, but she keeps trucking on. She keeps trucking on, and she tries to do the right thing. And I think... New York City probably would have just fallen apart without her. So I really 
So the things that I feel like Jurassic World got wrong with Bryce Dallas Howard's character as a career-minded woman, I feel like this movie got right about a career-minded woman. Yes. She, yes. Very good way to put she it. Did, she did everything and made all the mistakes. And we don't exactly... I don't... I feel like they briefly touched on, oh, it's because she approached the second Salem people. I was like, I, I'm pretty sure we found out how she sort of got demoted. But I feel like she was focused, but still kind and caring and still trusted her instincts and wasn't harsh and demanding. And it wasn't that she didn't have a family or a husband because she was career minded. You know, she was just going about her life the way she wanted to. And at that moment, it happened to be being an or was really important to her. And I think it was I think you totally nailed it when you said that it was very unusual to see a woman in that that place and to see a woman president um, of that community in the twenties. I just, I think she was great. I loved how awkward she was. I feel like it was real. It made her relatable. And I, I really love that her being kind. And again, it came all down to kindness at the end that she was able to sort of calm the obscurio and um, credence. She was able to sort of get to him because she had always been kind to him. Real, but kind. I, and what's interesting is I think that um, that sense of kindness between her and Jacob, Queenie, and Eddie, uh, or Newt, all remind me of that same kindness we see in Harry's character. You know, where more he's accepting. He's kind of Luna, and he's kind of Neville, yeah, and he's yeah, kind of everyone. exactly. Yeah. And even though at the same time it's interesting to watch, and, and what I liked was the way in which Tina has some prejudices, especially against nomages, that, that gets overturned by her experience with Jacob. And and so th- there's a great, like she is kind, but she also has places that she she grows. And it's not just that she ends up falling for Newt and vice versa. It's, it's because it's her experience with Newt and his acceptance of people like Jacob that teaches her maybe a new way of being because he's just modeling what that is for her. He's like being a good witness, you know? And so I, I think it's like what Ron did. It's like what Ron did in Harry Potter. We talked about how he came in with these sort of, I don't want to say not racist, but these judgmental approaches to certain, certain groups and, you know, Oh, you don't know what that is. And it was almost like that again. And that Newt provided that sort of like, but it doesn't have to be like that just because that's what you've been told perspective that she was able to, to still be kind and fallible, even though, you know, she sort of did have these prejudices against no matches and wanting to keep the war under wrap or wanting to keep the like division between the two groups under wraps and stuff like that. I loved how human the characters are. Like they might be magical, but they're so human in their strengths and weaknesses. You know, we don't have any perfect characters in here and uh, our, our heroes have weaknesses that are clearly shown that don't make us respect them any less as actual heroes and main characters. Mm. No, that's a great point, Bethany. And I, I completely agree with you because, uh, you know, just like the Harry series, Harry's not perfect. Hermione and Ron aren't perfect. None of the characters are perfect, and, and yet they're still heroes. And making a point of allowing your character to have flaws, I think is very important because, you know, perfect characters you can't live up to. 
Uh, and and these characters help show us the ways in which we can grow as well by modeling for us just as they're doing for each other in the film. So I do completely agree with you. Um, which brings me to Dan Fogler playing Jacob Kowalski. I don't know about you, but Jacob had it. me won over in the freaking... Uh, there was this beautiful, funny, hilarious preview for the film, like just like a TV commercial. And there's a scene, and it's not in the movie, and it makes me so mad. He's just sitting in Newt's suitcase, you know, down there next to Newt, and he goes, I want to be a wizard. <laughs> and it's not in the movie, but it, I was like, the moment I saw that on television, I was like, that's my favorite character in the movie. Just, he was... He is the joy in this movie. And I'll, I'll put it this way. Him and Queenie together are the joy in this movie. Like, they just bring so much vitality and life to it that, oh, I, I love I love him. And I love her. I just, I love it. He's, I loved him. He's basically us. We would love to have magical powers. It's very interesting to see. But would we really want to be put through all of those terrifying situations? And he's able to express basically how all of us feel uh because drea you're you're right and you you hit on this earlier with talking about that this is a pretty dark film i uh i I was really sad and and kind of i was not expecting him to forget yeah i was not expecting i the death basically uh i cried i cried i was sitting in the theater crying (laughs) like a small child yeah, that that was just that was heart wrenching. He was he was so great. He and he, I think that's perfect. He's ex, he's he's ex, he's us as viewers. We, he's what we want to be. And it's scary and dangerous, but would we trade it for anything? And he's like, heck no, I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know. And it was just, it was that was. I feel like that element of the movie was what made it like fantastical. Like that's where I feel like that piece of the puzzle comes into play and I love that he was a man in the 20s doing what men in the 20s did and working in the factory after fighting in the war and he decided that that wasn't what he wanted to do and he wanted to be a baker and he didn't care that machines could make pastries faster than him he could make them better and he would so I think that you know my love of croissants aside I thought that was great he has this way about him too where he kind of draws out all the other characters especially i thought that with newt he was able to find a way to make newt comfortable with him especially the first time they go into the tardis suitcase <laughs> and um, it was like watching doctor who okay it was like watching <laughs> doctor who uh and i i loved that though because he just kind of readily accepts the world around him and is like, he's not thrown off or anything like that. And I'm sure people will complain about that. But to me, it was like, if I all of a sudden learned that they're a wizard and witches, I wouldn't be freaking out. I'd probably be doing the same thing and be like, oh my God, this is awesome. He enables Newt to be able to explain like his world and the things around it. And that brings him more to life like it brings him out of his shell a little bit and I thought that was really cool and he does that for actually all of the characters because he helps win over Tina who has never even thought of looking at a nomad before and he of course definitely wins over Queenie 
you know, <laughs> I guess it's time we get to her character. And I was going to say, really can, we talk, can, we st- can we talk about Queenie here for a second? Yeah, let's talk about Queenie here for a second. Uh, so I have some very strong feelings about Queenie and that I love what she did um, for the characters, but the element of her mind reading, I was, I did not like how that played out. I was not a fan of that element. I get that she's a mind reader, but I didn't like that she just readily openly used it and flaunted it and had no sort of shame about it. Not that she should be shameful of it. That's not maybe the what I'm looking for, but there was no subtlety to it at all. At all. And that was a, that was like one of those again moments where it was a bit overbearing that she could just Turn it on, turn it on, do it. And she literally would have one-sided conversations because she could read what you were thinking and you'd never had to say a word. And I felt like it was a little overused. Just a little. It was a little intense. I liked her, but I didn't like that element of what they did with her. I thought she was a fascinating character. And I wasn't necessarily the biggest fan in the sense of, oh, my favorite character, that sort of thing. But I did like her. Um... Actually, I do kind of disagree with you, though. It it was awkward and it was overbearing. But honestly, I think that that's how it would work in real life. Because we all have those like small moments with our best friends, close family members, um, our spouse, kids, whoever you're super close with, where you can kind of have a moment where, you know, we say read each other's mind, but... what we really mean is just knowing each other well enough and being on the same page to where you kind of know what the other person is thinking or or you can have a pretty good guess at it and you say the same thing at the same time or they they seem to be feeling something and you can empathize with it enough to say, you know, hey, what's going on with this? Are you thinking this? And you're actually right. It's not because you have actual mind-reading powers, but if you're particularly empathetic human being that that can really freak people out sometimes uh especially if you're like you're getting to know somebody but you're not super close friends who knows everything about each other yet and that can can be a little bit disconcerting for people even without any special powers so i I feel like at some point she just embraced who she was and is like you know this this is who I am and I don't judge other people for anything that they're thinking. So why should you judge me? I I don't necessarily think that's right, but I feel like that's how she's come to terms with existing in the world without going crazy and without denying who she is. I am going to be really interested to see what they do with her character. Because I think it is a fascinating thing to think about because Snape was this. Mm-hmm. Snape was, was an excellent legitimate and an, uh, an Occlumen. And uh, which is why he could fool Voldemort for all those years. I loved the portrayal. I think Alison uh, Sudol was just kind of a dream. <laughs> I mean, she is hilarious in the role. And I love the way she dealt with her legitimacy and I I agree with you Bethany I think 
if you were this person, you would just kind of have to come to terms with who you are and be okay with it. I mean, and you would have to get used to being able to hear everyone all the time what they're thinking. And that would get a, I mean, you would have to learn to live with that in the same way that Superman has to learn to be able to live and focus, even though he can legitimately hear everybody on the planet all at one time if he wants to. You know, it's it's the same kind of thing. I don't disagree with any of this from a character standpoint. I disagree with how often it was used as a film element. And I can I can understand that. Uh, I think that I kind of just loved her as a character and I didn't care. <laughs> so I do <laughs> get what you're saying, enough. though. Yeah, I, I, I'm just already in love with her. So it, you're just kind of pulling a Jacob. I'm a little bit like Jacob. (laughs) I was already Twitter pated. So, you know, like, but Matt, but I made him Coco. Yeah, that was hilarious. It was so cute. Or when she's like, because that's what he said before they left. I know. It's great. Uh, And then I loved too when she was like, She's like, it's okay, honey. Don't worry. Everybody thinks that when they see me for the first time. And I was like, oh, can you imagine if somebody actually like could read your mind and heard, you know, what you thought? Especially in that moment. Exactly. In that moment when she's wearing nothing but lingerie. Uh, yeah. Who? Um, a little awkward. But I, what I, I like, and that's what I thought was really smart about what you said, Bethany. She's just learned to roll with what everybody else is thinking and not necessarily take it too seriously. Uh, so when you can hear what everybody's thinking, you realize just like you, when you're thinking, you probably think things that you don't necessarily always mean or you're just, you know, it's private. Yeah. I actually really liked the moment when she draws out of Newt because she won't stop. And I thought that was a really nice, almost like therapy moment where she's using her ability to help Newt communicate because Newt's not very comfortable with communicating. But she knows just the right thing to spur him on towards more communication other than shutting down. Yes, but at the same time, he did ask her not to do that, and she still did it, which is really inconsiderate. And I, I get that she was trying to push through and help him anyway because she knew he needed it, but it was... To me, that was that moment of like, you've almost crossed a line. You almost crossed a line into like, right now you're not respecting my boundaries when I ask you to. And that was when she should keep pushing him, but not use her power or her magic to do that. She needed to connect with him on a different level. And I that was one of the moments I liked the least because from a actual psychological health perspective, that was dangerous. And it was dangerous to show that it was okay. Yeah. But I also think that's the question. Can she control it? Right. I mean, and that's it doesn't the moment like, I think she may not be able to. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. So I do think that that's a, that's a thing for her. Like she can't help it. It's just, there's, there's nothing she can do about it. And I, and she even says that to him. I, I, I can't, it's basically like there is no off switch for her. So that, and that would be a really hard thing if that's just, uh, a gift that you're kind of born with. I think that it'll be interesting because Bethany, this is something that I think we've uh, seen in the Star Wars world where Jedi have, you know, certain powers that are better than other Jedi, that the thing that they're really good at. And I'm wondering if wizards are kind of the same way. Like they are kind of born with a gift uh, in magic that goes beyond what other wizards have. Uh, and so, 
hers happens to be almost something that a lot of people might consider a curse because you grow up being able to hear everything that everybody's saying. That would be awful. Right, exactly. And it's it would completely change her perception of reality as well. Like there there is no way we can hypothesize, we can we can guess, but there actually really is no way for us to truly understand if that were a real thing how that would impact somebody and change their entire viewpoint of the world and themselves and people and what's right and wrong because maybe from their perspective the only thing that they truly want is for somebody to be able to read their thoughts so that they feel understood and because they've grown up that way their entire life there's no understanding or concept of this is invasive and morally questionable so there was that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where the character uh, Deanna Troy was essentially uh, uh, assaulted within her mind or quite possibly considered to be mind-raped by a different alien species. And this brings up the entire other end of the spectrum where this is extremely morally questionable and Newt is really the only one who gets at all close to addressing it. Which, considering that he's so awkward with people, is telling you just how extremely uncomfortable he is. Um, and it, I think he realizes at some point that she means well, and she's trying to help, and he becomes okay with it, but not until after she's pushed through several boundaries. Which, you know, I'm, I was uncomfortable watching. No, I think it, it, and that's the thing for me with her character that makes it so interesting moving forward because it feels like she could end up being a pretty important character this series because she can read people's minds and then it might make her uh, an important character for finding dark wizards aligned with Grindelwald, maybe? I don't know, so... She is kind of a human lie detector, uh, so which leads us to the characters that we might consider the villains in here. And I thought we should, before we reach Percival Graves, I, th- I think maybe we should talk about the two that are kind of linked here with Credence and uh, his adopted mother from hell, Mary Lou. I, both of these this whole thing was just fascinating to me because she's adopted children. She doesn't really seem to care for them, but it's really just so that they can help her indoctrinate other children that wizards and witches are bad. Well, she's also picked children of wizards to do it. Or that she suspects are wizards, yeah. Yeah, which was strange it's almost like there was a part of her that felt guilty about these people being killed and she wanted to take care of their kids and teach them a better way to live but didn't actually want to take care of them or teach them a better way to live (laughs) just teach them her sort of one-sided beliefs i'm actually i was actually surprised that he hadn't lashed out at her before because he clearly couldn't control it and when people pissed him off they died so i was actually kind of surprised it took that long for her to end up like that Well, from a psychological perspective, um, actually, I'll back up a little bit. uh, I'm taking a political science class this semester uh, that is about 
human trafficking and the politics of human trafficking. Um, and it's my, essentially it's my senior major class with a lot of big projects involved. So I've probably spent already 150 hours or so studying different elements of human trafficking, including uh, the effects of trafficking on the victims. And when you have a, a situation like this where somebody is in the role of having way more relational power compared to the other person, and that can be, it can be completely imagined in the sense of somebody simply just feeling like another person has all the power, to fully legitimate where somebody has absolute power because they have a gun and they keep you chained up, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the psychological elements here, I think that Credence heavily displays are one where he is not just angry with her, but he fears her, but he also wants to please her because she's the one who has been giving him care and maybe all of his life he's never had anything better. This is what he thinks is care. She is his caregiver, and even though sometimes he hates her and he usually fears her, there's an element, quite probably, of love there in the sense of feeling like, you know, she gives me food, she takes care of me, she tries to make rules, um, she she trusts me to do all of these things. Because um, that's something, like, very common with uh, victims of trafficking. They'll say things like their trafficker gave them food once when they needed it or gave them a $5 piece of jewelry and they grew up with such horrible lives that their entire perception of love is just completely screwed up and they think that maybe they just can't manage themselves and their trafficker needs to manage them. They need to be punished in order to know how to behave and they feel like it's just their their entire perception of reality is messed up. Uh, and on a simple level, it can be called Stockholm Syndrome. Well, she was a, a great, abusive bad guy. She was interesting in that she was so convicted in her beliefs, but it, it definitely crossed into the abusive, controlling area. And it was it was an interesting way to... to frame this if you will bad guy uh, for lack of a better term this antagonist I guess in that you know it sort of was I feel like it was touching a little bit on you know Grindelwald um, which we we can talk about in a minute if you want similar in that sort of you know it's interesting he Credence kept finding himself drawn to that same type of personality because he found it comforting because it's like you mentioned it's probably all he knows and it I always empathize so much when the antagonist or the main problem in the film is is a creation of his environment and his upbringing because you know the whole point of this obscurio is that you know, it's suppressed powers. It's suppressing who he is and and what his powers are, that causes and this ability to just lash out and wreak havoc. And you feel for him, but he's st- but like the president says at the end, you know, he still broke the law and he still killed people, and he still put our entire life, you know, our entire way of being in jeopardy. And whether you agree that she did the right thing or not, it was that 
that conflict for me is always really, it really hits me in the feels like it really does. So, you know, I found that interesting that again, we get a bad guy who's not really a bad guy. You want to feel bad for them, but at the same time, you kind of don't want to feel bad for them, but you do. Yeah, no, I, what made this so fascinating was the way in which Grindelwald is using this character and he doesn't even realize that he is using the actual obscurious, you know, like he's using the person who's controlling obscurus. And I think uh, that was also fascinating because he plays his hand of dismissing him when he thinks he's done with him and seals his kind of fate of not being able to get what he wants because he he's um, a transactional person. Like Grindelwald is only after a a transactional relationship with anyone. He doesn't really care. He just wants to get what he wants. And I think that's really fantastic. Uh, and I think it was played very, very well by Ezra Miller. Uh, I think Samantha Morton did a great job as Mary Lou. Uh, and it was just uh, uber creepy. And they then they were so creepy. They were oh, so good at being creepy. Yeah, she really is. And and then on top of that, getting to Colin Farrell playing Percival Graves, who is Grinderwald, aka also Johnny Depp when, when he's revealed. I thought his performance was fantastic because he's kind of so suave and cool at the beginning. And he has everybody fooled. And I really like that kind of character. I, I like when you get that slow reveal of who they are and what their intentions are. And I thought it was really well done. And I thought he played the part masterfully. Because even at the end, before he's has the mask taken off, he's pleading with the Wizarding World of the United States don't don't you want to stop hiding in the shadows? Basically, he's saying, don't you want to stop protecting yourselves and the people out there by just being who we are and basically kind of doing the same thing that Voldemort will say later on? Shouldn't we just be on top, guys? Yeah, it was. He did a great job. I'm actually really disappointed that we found out he was Grindelwald and that he won't come back. Because I think Colin Farrell did such a great job that I'm actually disappointed that that character doesn't come back now. Um, Or it would be really difficult, maybe unwise to do that. I had a feeling from the beginning that he was Grindelwald. I I couldn't confirm it, but I just sort of knew. I knew in my heart. My heart knew the bad guy, guys. I don't know. He did such a great job. He really did. He had that presence, that command. I don't don't even... I, I don't think there's words for me to just explain how powerful he was in that film he was and it was a he's definitely a bad guy but again we come back a bit to the gray is it so bad to want to be true to yourself in the sense of admitting that you are magical in the case of the harry potter universe in in a way it's almost like we have the obscurious which is made out of repression. And yet we have an entire group of magical beings who feel like they have to essentially repress themselves to the rest of the world. And there there are different levels of this, of course, because the Obscurious seems to be more like a complete repression of uh, your magical abilities. But 
still there is that sense of the the psychological elements to this film with the repression and with credence um, and with just e- each of the characters and Jacob entering this new world and Newt struggling with his relationships with uh, anyone who's not a magical creature <laughs> that just uh, upon a deeper look at the film, like you can watch it for a fun, well, kind of dark, but fun movie about magic that makes you think. Uh, but if you start examining each of the characters and different plot aspects and elements of repression and abuse and relationships and what is taking your power too far and what's using your power correctly, there are so many twists and turns in this film. I think that was something that was really fascinating. The the theme of like the the us versus them that happens in the movie, where where the magical community has kind of created that, and then in a sense, it it's it's not that we're necessarily better, but it is this protectionism that they have uh, over themselves. And in the United States, it's even worse. Uh, than it is in Britain where you're not allowed to be friends with no mages and you're not allowed to marry them. And so you really are hidden away. And the idea of exposure is the, you know, the, the most frightening thing that can happen. But what I love is the way in which the film with Jacob having a major impact on Tina and Queenie and even the president of the Magical Congress by I think seeing that maybe if we spend some significant time with people that are on the other side, you know, we can stop fearing that unknown. And maybe we can find a way that to learn that communication leads to an awareness that we're really not all that different. You know, and I think that's a really nice theme to see play out because Definitely Tina and Queenie learn that in this movie. Uh, and I think that's going to have a, a, a major impact on them. But I also think it might have a change slowly in the wizarding world in America. And I just thought that was fantastic because how many times do we just immediately say, oh, well, that person's this. And so we just discount them because we put them in a little box and said, oh, that's all that they are, you know? I mean, and we do that a lot. And I, I thought this movie did the same thing. I mean, we just call them a nomad, and, and and they're not somebody I should ever associate with, you know? It's kind of, it's very interesting that when you start to just put labels on people that allows you to assume that you know what they are, but you've never actually really talked to one, <laughs> or you might never know one, <laughs> like... You, you might have a problem. So I thought that was a really fascinating theme to see play out there. And it's something that Colin Farrell, Percival Graves, and Grindelwald are playing on that whole idea of, well, you're having to repress who you are and you know, you're, you're, you're not allowed to be who you are. But he's using that in the totally opposite way to say, well, shouldn't we just be able to be whoever we are at the expense of others. And that's the big difference. Which I I guess uh, leads me to just one last thing to really talk about because we're going long. But I guess that's to be expected when we're talking about a brand new movie that we all seem to really enjoy. 
Uh, the Wizarding World in, in the USA, I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about experiencing a whole new part of the Wizarding World. And, I mean, we have some great things in it with all the effects with the creatures and the, kind of the new musical landscape that we get for this movie. What did you guys think about that creating this new part of the Harry Potter universe? So I really enjoyed how they did Makuza. And I really liked that it was an existing building that had like a perception filter somehow and was two buildings at the same time. I really enjoyed that. Um, I wish, I, I honestly wish I'd had a little more. We got the speakeasy and we got the ministry and we got the caves. And that was it. I was I was missing my and maybe it's just because of where they're at and they're sort of in hiding, if you will, to avoid like the witch trials and stuff like that. We don't have like a whole underground we didn't or at least we didn't get introduced to the whole underground culture of the wizarding world in America, like we do in Harry Potter, where you've got Diagon Alley and all these other things that make up the entire world of the wizarding world there. I don't feel like I got quite as much of that in this one as I did. Um, I think we've talked a little bit about it or quite a bit about it already in that they sort of live in this fearful state. Um, and that was very different um, from what we've experienced with Harry Potter. But you also, I also had to keep reminding myself that I went back, you know, 60, 70 years in the past. So um, how that culturally played out. Um, it was a completely different culture and a completely different wizarding world. And I feel like the culture shock was maybe a little greater than the wizarding world shock for me. <laughs> so um I am looking forward to seeing more of it. I don't know how much more of America we'll get. I was really excited. So I live in Arizona. So I was really excited when the, he was talking about he wants to take Frank back to Arizona. And then when he didn't when he didn't make it there, I was like, no, you could have seen the cactus and the cowboys. But um, I wanted to see a wizard cowboy for some reason. But um, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't really answer your question, but I'm, I'm going to go with I don't know. <laughs> I, I actually I I really agree with you. The there were, there was a lot of wizarding in the sense that we saw a lot of magic used. A lot of the characters were very magical. We saw all these magical creatures and the battle and the obscurious and uh, the whole element of the fear of the I guess anti magical people because it wasn't just witch, witches and wizards they're against, but magic in general focused on witches and wizards. And so that there was a ton of magic in the film, but we didn't really have the same type of wizarding world feel that we had in the actual Harry Potter films. Uh, that so many of the things, Drea, that you mentioned that weren't around, they weren't necessarily replaced by anything either. I, I felt like I did go into this film having only seen a trailer or two. I hadn't really read anything about it. I stayed completely spoiler-free. And I love that. And I do love going and seeing movies that way. But we should be friends. <laughs> but the uh it was all so incredibly new. It 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 just it didn't really feel like Harry Potter in a lot of ways. It felt like I was getting introduced to an entirely new universe with similar concepts, which I I feel can work. 
but it, it was a bit odd. Again, it was the the culture shock of the era that it was set in, the place that it was set in, all of the new characters, plus the different types of what's going on in the magical world there. Um, so it may be, maybe it's time that we consider the fact that this is just an entirely different animal than the Harry Potter films. We got a wizarding community. We got a wizarding group of people, but we didn't get a wizarding like setting for them. And I think that's what different is, is we got, we got a lot more people and magic, like you said, but less actual place that was magical. And I think part of that too, it goes along with the fact that, you know, Newt is new to the United States. Uh, he's ne- he doesn't really know much about the wizarding world there and he only gets to scratch the surface. So because we're seeing the world through his eyes, we only get to scratch the surface. And so to me, I guess I wasn't disappointed that I didn't see any of those things because I didn't necessarily expect to get the full-on experience, mainly because Harry doesn't really get the full-on experience the very first time. I would uh, disagree can... with that. I would disagree with that part. Well, no, because he continues to experience new things each and every year, and so it's like, I I mean, I know what you're saying, but I, I, I think... You're also right, Bethany, that this is a completely different animal, a completely different beast. And that means that we can't expect it to play by the same rules as if the Harry Potter films did because it's not going to. And I, because of that, I think that this movie sets up a very interesting kind of platform because I've heard that the next movie takes place in Paris. And so it kind of looks like we're going to be globe hopping a little bit. And I think that's really fascinating that we might get to see very different parts of the wizarding world throughout this series because we're kind of also following Grindelwald as well. And so to me, I I really enjoyed what we did get. I I thought the Makuza was really cool looking. I, I loved the architecture they used. I liked the way in which the wizarding world in America felt like the 20s, very much so. Um, You know, there's a lot of art deco, and even their wands, like um, Percival Graves' wand, has a very art deco look to the end of it with, like, a silver wrapping and everything. Like, uh, all that stuff was really fascinating to me. And then, too, I I actually really liked um, James Newton Howard's score, uh, it it felt Harry Potter-ish, but it also felt different. It had jazz in it, which was fun because it's the Roaring Twenties. And so all that stuff and, and the creature work was fun. And so, yeah, I, diving into the Wizarding World of the U.S. and of Newt and his Fantastic Beasts, I had a blast. Like, I just, I was enjoying soaking it all in. And um, you've mentioned a couple of times, Drea, that you felt overwhelmed and I think that's the thing that makes this fun is that kind of makes you want to see it again. So you can go in and soak up a little bit more each time. And I'll say it again. I love that fact that I am getting the opportunity to soak up this new part of the wizarding world this way. And I can't just go home and read the book. You know, like I have a reason to go back and watch the movie. And to me, that's really fun. Uh, and so I guess the the last question I have for both of you 
is what would you rate Fantastic Beasts and where to find them? Um, let's do out of 10 because that way we have a lot of wiggle room and you can kind of figure out where you'd want to place it. So I don't know. What do you think, Bethany? I would give this probably a 6 or 7 out of 10. I really loved aspects of the film, but I, I felt like there was a bit too much threshold for people who aren't necessarily that into Harry Potter into the film. So, so many new characters, so many new settings that got kind of brushed over because it's, it's an incredibly busy film, which on a personal level I like, uh, but I do feel like that's a barrier to entry to people who aren't as steeped into Harry Potter lore as we are. Uh, and especially as you two are. But yeah, a solid six or seven out of ten. Loved the characters. Just loved the imagery of it. It was a, just an absolutely beautiful film. And I loved the consideration of the different moral dilemmas and character flaws and strengths and the exploration of the psychological aspects. So for Queenie's mind reading, use of that, for Newt's inability to make eye contact ever, for and for how busy, which my lovely friends here enjoyed and I usually don't enjoy, for those things, I would like to ask for eight marshmallows in my cocoa, please. So I'll give it an eight out of ten. Nice. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> I love that rating. I, I'm a, a huge Harry Potter nut. And I absolutely adore her books. I even enjoyed The Cursed Child. I have read Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the school book, and that was actually really fun. I think that she is proving herself to be adept at creating films as well. I think that she will continue to get better, just as she did with the Harry Potter series. I think that anybody would tell you that the first book is not her best book and that she continued to improve as she moved forward. I think she will do the same as she's writing the scripts for uh, the next four films. And so I'm very excited. I think this is a great foundation for what looks to be a really interesting series about the beginning and the end of the first great wizarding war. And I am very excited to continue on this journey. And I can't wait to see what happens with the rest of these characters. And I loved the characters in this film. I absolutely adored the, the four main characters. I, I think that they are fantastic and I really want to see more of them. So I can't wait for movie two in the series and, and hopefully I'm, I'm hoping that it will involve newt and tina and jacob and queenie in a big way uh at least for that and maybe then we can kind of start to transition to you know dumbledore and grindelwald and all of that so for all of that uh drea we actually have the same rating i'm gonna say it's eight out of ten uh fantastic Lost Beast? Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> let's say this. It's eight out of ten gold bars out of the Niffler's pouch. <laughs> or you which... could do eight out of ten of those uh, silver eggshells. Yeah. Yes. Found uh, the bakery. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's eight so, pastries. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Whoa. yes. Or eight out of ten of pastries. Jacob's pastries. 
I know they looked so good. Oh man. So I, I'm so excited. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed us talking about fantastic beasts and has gotten a chance to see it. Uh, I really love that we get to do this because of our wonderful associate producers through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson. Thank you so much gentlemen for supporting us through Patreon and we're a listener supported network. And so that means that we need support from people just like you and our associate producers to make sure that everything we do here, Cross Trek FM, keeps coming to you each and every week. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can be part of the team. There's a bunch of different ways. Uh, and honestly, every little bit helps every month. So again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Bethany, thank you so much for being here again tonight in the 602 Club. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you online and maybe talk to you more about Harry Potter or Fantastic Beasts. Thank you. Uh, and thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun to talk about this. You can find me online uh, on Twitter at Bethany L. Blanton and Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, all the same name. Uh, and I do lots of internet stuff, so it, shall we say, with the uh, Star Wars Report. So you can find me at StarWarsReport.com. Andrea, always good to have you back talking about something in in and around the Harry Potter universe. So uh, <laughs> let everybody know <laughs> where they can find you there online as uh, well as uh, the podcast that you're involved with. Uh, so you can find me on Instagram at Drea Kaufman and it's C-O-F-F-M-A-N um, or Twitter at PCF Chick. Um, I am a host on Educating Geeks, which is educatinggeeks.com, and we are a podcast that helps invite people into the geek folds, so people are passionate about things, and we want to help bring them in and have them enjoy them with us instead of shaming them or making them feel bad because they've never, they haven't seen Harry Potter or they haven't seen Fantastic Beasts for three or four or five or six times like Matthew will at some point. Um, and so we like to encourage that. So uh, you can find us at educatinggeeks.com. Um, same for all the social medias at Educating Geeks. So, and it's always a pleasure being here on the, the uh, 602 Club with you guys. So it's a, it was great to come back and to let me talk so much Harry Potter this year. It was so much fun. It has been fun. I can't believe we finally made it here. It's it's crazy <laughs> to think we started the year off with, you know, the Sorcerer's Stone, which is 15 years old this year, and which makes me feel really old. Uh, and to uh, wrap yeah. it up here, the year in the Harry Potter universe with Fantastic Beasts was, well, fantastic. So you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. And I also do Literary Treks with Bruce and Dan talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek, also getting a chance to interview a lot of the authors about their latest works. You can find me uh, here with the 602 Club, and then, of course, we have Star Wars, the 602 Club collection, which is all of the Star Wars episodes. You can find that in one feed there on iTunes in its own feed. It's great, so definitely check that out. And, of course, uh, I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills there on Nerd Party Network, that's uh, nerdparty.com. Or, of course, you can find that on iTunes under Aggressive Negotiations. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Okay.